Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mafadon. Thanks for tuning in. Although November Native American Heritage Month has come to an end, the culture and history of their people were anything but over for the Celebrate series at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum last Friday. There was more to appreciate the morning after Thanksgiving as Wampanoag Nation singers and dancers shared the stories and music of their people with the next generation. The Celebrate series, designed for family audiences and children ages five and up, highlights America's rich cultural diversity through the arts. And Friday was no exception, as families of all backgrounds took part in traditional songs of the Wampanoag Nation, dancing their way through the auditorium of the JFK Library. With four to 5,000 Wampanoag people living in New England today, preserving their culture is more important than ever. And the opportunity to connect and converse brought a deeper understanding of this native tribe. We've been on this journey, and we realize how important it is that we have respect for all living things. And mankind needs to do that as well. The earth has been put here to take care of us, and we need to respect it and live in harmony with it. Otherwise, it's going to retaliate, as we will see our next generations will have to deal with that. So it's important that we learn from each other and be able to come as one mind and so that we can survive here for generations to come. It's important, of course, to share um, the fact that Mashpee Wampanoags and all Wampanoag people still are here on their ancestral homeland, struggling to um, uh, make it in today's world and also to protect our resources, our water sources, our land is always under threat um, after these 400 years of colonization. Um, so it's important to uh, bring that awareness to the world. Um, and also to help our young tribal members and um, uh, young people to carry on the things that we were taught because uh, they're going to have to teach th their children those traditions and the cultures in a way that uh, enabled our people to live and also to uh, be here today. I think it's really beautiful to see, you know, young people engaging uh, with our people, us as in the Wampanoag people, um, because not only does it show that there's a future where we have young people who are educating themselves about our history, uh, but that also means that we're, con we're connecting on the human level. Uh, and I think that is the key to um, building better relations, right? Like, I think if we can come together and have an understanding of where we come from, what foot we're standing on, I think that makes for better relations. As housing stability becomes harder to find, gentrification is slowly tightening its grip on areas like East Boston. Residents at 168 Gove Street fear the worst as they fight for their right to affordable rent. Returning home to one's apartment at the end of a long day is a pleasant feeling indeed. But the tenants at 168 Gove Street in East Boston say their landlord is denying them this feeling of security. I don't feel comfortable. I'm anxious all the time expecting or not even knowing when I'm going to get a letter at my door saying I'm going to get evicted. It's pretty scary. At a rally on Saturday, tenants signed a collective letter to Wolf Properties and Fernando Del Fior, urging the landlords to negotiate instead of evict. Residents have been without a lease for three months and are asking for a fair long-term lease that will guarantee housing stability. 
Since 2018, the families of the four-unit building have been fighting eviction and the gentrification of their community. The uncertainty of their situation has had an undeniable ripple effect. A lot of these corporate owners really need to understand the impact that they're doing to families when, you know, they, they refuse to sign a lease, when they refuse to lease up their tenants, um, because it creates a state of perpetual uncertainty, right? You're, you're, you know, you're not a transient student, you're not uh, somebody who's just like coming in and out of East Boston you're, you're, or Boston or your neighborhood when you're a part of your community and you're told that at any moment somebody could just ask you to leave and kick you out. Well, it creates an enormous amount of, of instability, not just for you, but for your kids, for your, your spouse, for the whole family unit. City Life Vita Urbana has been steadfast in their demands for rent control to stop family displacement as they hold landlords accountable. The families uh, in these buildings have expressed their desire to stay and the fact that the, the landlord um, refuses to renew their contract and not providing them with any security to remain in the homes that they've been there for years is um, cruel and inhumane and is part of a bigger problem that is displacing families just for profit. There's good news for first-time home buyers in Boston. Mayor Wu announced historic investments for low- and middle-income residents to make home ownership a reality. Mayor Wu is building on her commitment to create affordable housing in the city by investing in programs for low- and middle-income home buyers, including those on Section 8. The funding that we're talking about today will help build at least 300 new homes on underutilized city land, increase down payment assistance for about 650 low- and moderate-income families, provide financial support and education for first-generation home buyers and change cycles of wealth building, and create a first-home program that will provide such substantial financial assistance to public housing residents looking to buy a home that doing so, going directly from public housing to home ownership, will be even more affordable than finding a place to rent. Boston will start new housing construction by converting 150 city-owned properties, mostly vacant lots, by using $60 million of American Rescue Plan Act funding. This is all in an effort to create new home ownership opportunities. As part of this initiative, the city will also be providing more financial support in the form of closing costs, down payment assistance for the first-time home buyers. And what makes this initiative different is that BHA residents now will qualify for up to $50,000 in assistance. The mayor's office, in partnership with the Boston Home Center, has launched multiple programs for first-time and first-generation home buyers. Boston's home ownership rate is only 35%, with the majority of homeowners, 44%, identifying as white. You are opening the doors to opportunities that we know are incredibly important, especially for communities of color, especially for folks buying their very first home, to generational wealth, to opportunities that they have not seen before. The initiative is a major step in Mayor Wu's plans to address housing affordability and inclusion. In the Bay Village, community members gathered at the site of the Coconut Grove nightclub to commemorate the 80 years since the tragic fire that took the lives of over 400 people. A 
On November 29, 1942, 490 people tragically perished in one of the largest building fires of the 20th century, known as the Coconut Grove Fire. The Coconut Grove Nightclub was a widely popular nightlife spot in Boston, known for its glamorous atmosphere and celebrity sightings. The fire started in the club's basement and quickly spread throughout the building. Remember all those from the Boston Fire Department, police departments, all the U.S. service men and women, doctors, nurses, the countless civilians and city officials who, who literally came to the rescue in a time of such great need. Mayor Wu, former Mayor Ray Flynn, and the Boston Fire Department paid tribute to the lives lost on that fateful November night, as well as the heroic actions from the hundreds of first responders and health care workers who aided the victims. 490 lives lost and so many more who were saved because of the bravery and the quick action of our first responders here and in our hospitals. It's hard to imagine a more devastating tragedy, and thanks to the work to ensure that the Coconut Grove's legacy lives on, we have not had to see a similar event here in our city. There's a special place in heaven, not only for the people who died in the Coconut Grove, but for the people who kept this memory alive so no one else would go through that same suffering and ordeal. The Coconut Grove fire is on record as the third biggest structure fire in U.S. history. Hundreds of lives were forever changed that day, as well as the medical community, which made great advancements following the tragedy in their treatment of burn patients. To discuss the intricacies of the club and the fire, we brought in Mike Hanlon and Paul Miller, founding members of the Coconut Grove Fire Memorial Committee. Can you kind of take us through the events of what happened that fateful night, November 28th, 1942? Well, it was, it was Thanksgiving Day weekend, so there's a lot of people in town, and it was a Saturday night. And earlier that day at Fenway Park was yeah. the annual Boston College Holy Cross football game. And what was really key of that game is Boston College was undefeated, number one team in the country. And... Um, they were, they were going to win the game and go on to the Rose Bowl and be the national champs, <laughs> and they got up against Holy Cross, their local rivals. Hmm. So a piece of irony, and there's so many, so many pieces of irony throughout this, this story, is that the program featured the captains of the Holy Cross and Boston College team, and there were two co-captains of BC, and one, his number was 12, and the other was 55. And that turned out to be the final score of the football game, Holy Cross winning. Hmm. So for a lot of people, it was a very depressing afternoon. It was a big upset. And, uh, but it didn't stop the revelers from wanting to get to the Coconut Grove. You also had World War II uh, ha was occurring, and Boston was a, was a shipping uh, port uh, for soldiers who were going to Europe to fight the war. So you had a really diverse, multiple crowd in downtown Boston going to the theater, live theater, movie theater, nightclubs, uh, 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 in, in places like the Coconut Grove, which also was a uh, kind of a dining area mm -hmm. with live shows. And the occupancy for the Coconut Grove was 460 people. And you have to realize, at the end of this fire, uh, there were 490 people that died. Wow. So we have one of our board members who's, who's tracked 
well over 950 people who were in that nightclub that night. The fire allegedly started in the, in the basement. There was a, uh, a lounge called the Melanie Lounge. It was a piano bar. And a fellow was with his date, and where he was in the corner, he unscrewed a Christmas-size light, uh, uh, light bulb, but it caused darkness, so this busboy serving drinks complained to the bartender, and he said, go over and just put the light bulb back in. He couldn't find the socket to put the light bulb in, so he lit a match. And that may have caused a spark to light the satin ceiling drop or the paper fawns from the imitation palm tree. Because it was a coconut grove, so it was decorated with all these palm trees everywhere. And, and that may have been a cause, and there were other theories. This really has not been a firm, definitive answer as to what caused this fire. So the fire started about 10.15, just as the second show was coming on. It started in the basement, um, and it tore up. Because the basement was an enclosed area, the fire started there, and it tore up the stairs seeking oxygen. Mm. And it arrives on the second floor, the first floor, and out into the, so the, the lobby area and the dance floor where the place was packed. It was a dinner supper club. So there's all these tables on the dance floor, and there's people sitting waiting to eat and see the show. Uh, and the fire estimated only lasted about 22 minutes, somewhere between 20 and 27 minutes. And wow. there was, ended up 490 people perished in the fire. What happened, it wasn't so much the fire as it was the heat. You had, when the firefighters were, were finally able to gain entrance into the club and the fire was out, they could see patrons still sitting at a cocktail table and they thought they were alive, they would touch them and see if they would move. And what happened is that they, they, were, they died, but they died as a result of pulmonary issues. They mm. were breathing in either uh, impure gases or the heat was so tremendous that it just burnt their insides. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, as Paul mentioned earlier, the, uh, there were three archways from Piedmont Street that you would gain entrance to, the, to a revolving door. And 99% of the people who come into a building, they're going to go out the same way they came in. It's just human nature. And you had people who were rushing towards the revolving door. And obviously, some people got out and a lot of people got stuck. And it just, you know, everyone pushing. And uh, as a result, it also, the firefighters saw a large uh, pile, if you will, mm. of bodies lined up. Uh, trying to get through the revolving door. That's terrible. So unfortunately, a lot of um, terrible things coming together to create this tragedy. It, it was, you know, to use, use the term, it was a perfect storm in reverse mm. as to what happened. As Paul mentioned earlier, the management had locked doors or had put coat racks in front of doorways um, to prevent people from getting out without paying their bill. And uh, except for employees, employees used a back door to come in. And there was a downstairs cellar door that, that some employees knew about. And as a result, they were trying to rescue uh, folks who, particularly from the downstairs Melanie Lounge, rather than running up the staircase, they could run the other way hmm. uh, through a doorway. So speaking of those revolving doors, um, looking back at 
you know, it's been 80 years since then. What are some of the things that we have learned in terms of the fire and the safety measures that have been put in place so a tragedy like this can't happen again? Yeah, the, so some of the fire um, uh, things that have been put in place are backup batteries for the exit signs everywhere you go. So the general public really doesn't understand when you go into a place of public gathering, every single restaurant, theater, um, function hall you go into has remnants of the coconut grove in it. The exit signs, the ability to get out quickly, mm -hmm. um, the secondary lighting, um, fire inspections, there's still fire inspections that happen all over the world. The thing about the coconut grove is that what happened in, in Boston that night was adopted into the code of Boston and then Massachusetts code and that was spread across the country so it's the basis of the um, United States fire code in a lot of a lot of ways and that's been adopted internationally so it saves millions of lives every year every year at least um, just from the terrible events of that night and and creating all these different fire codes yeah. so if you if you went to a commercial building you may see in the front door a revolving door mm -hmm. but it has to have two doors on one on either side and they have to push out um, and collapsible. The, door, the, the revolving door now has to oh, you be able to pull uh, a, a pin and they all collapse together instead of continuing trying to turn. Right. Yeah. And the other thing was fire inspection. Uh, also, fire, as Paul mentioned, fire codes were changed, building codes were changed, inspections, and what to inspect has changed. And, and all of that was instituted here in Boston, let alone the unbelievable advan advan advances uh, of burn care. Right. Uh, and that happened at Boston City Hospital, which is now Boston Medical Center, and Mass General Hospital. There were some traditional ways to treat burn patients. And at the time, that was the medicine. But there was a new way of thinking things because there, were, there was a concern because we're now in the war that the Germans would attack, particularly the Boston area, mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, because it was a port in which soldiers were being shipped across the, the country. And there was about two or three weeks prior to the Coconut Grove fire, there was an exercise by physicians in those two major hospitals and others. What if, what if we were attacked and bombs were bursting and people were affected by that by burns what can we do what kind of a capacity do we have how how quickly can we react to save somebody and that was put into practice the night of the coconut grove mm -hmm. there were hundreds of people who were either by car or taxi or or bus shipped to from the club on piedmont street to boston city hospital and to mass general they were the two closest hospitals they were bringing in a new patient every minute to both of that. There was only those two hospitals and those two emergency rooms really operating in the, in the city at the time. So the sheer volume of patients coming in threatened to overwhelm the medical system here in Boston. The conversation with Mike and Paul continues. You can watch the full 20-minute interview on the Coconut Grove on BNN's video on-demand page under BNN News. 
We switch gears now to Cirque du Soleil. The famous acrobatic company is performing for the first time at Wang Theater at the Box Center. And in another first, Cirque du Soleil's production is holiday-themed. Duo-strapped aerialists Suren Buzian and Karina Konachkivska dish on the latest show, Twas the Night Before, running now through December 11th. Enjoy. It was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Twas the Night Before is Cirque du Soleil's first holiday-themed show inspired by the lines of the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore. It's also the first time that the company is performing on the iconic Box Center Wang Theater stage. Uh, please tell us about your act in the show and what it's been like performing at the Boston Landmark um, rather than your usual haunts of uh, the Big Top or an arena. Uh, it's pretty magical to perform in a theater comparing to a big top because everything is so compact and cozy. We have the audience line up in a straight line, you know, it's all focused straight rather than being all around. So it is different, it feels more personal with the people. And, and we have a nice view from the stage, yeah? Theater is gorgeous. It's like you can freeze sometimes just looking at the decoration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. Our place in the show is um, the opening. Actually, we're doing the opening of the show with the snowstorm. We play the characters and have the snowflakes. Um, we bring some magic, some dynamics. We do the aerial routine. And we kind of yeah. snowstorm. And with snowflakes, which need to be kind of gentle, but the same way, keep this dynamic. So it's a nice challenge for us as a performance. And what's the story of Twas the Night Before? And how does Cirque du Soleil put its own unique stamp on it? Well, it's a, it's a, like, it's a old traditional novel, yeah? Twas, night, twas, the, twas the Night Before. But I think the original name, it was Visit of uh, San Nicolas. And with Cirque du Soleil, of course, he put it in his own manner. It's like adding more acrobatic, gymnastic, um, Changing music, not changing, but adding some some uh, accent to the music, which is helping to the performers, yeah, to follow it. And uh, I think, yeah, instead of like normal theater, sort of Soleil putting more physical theater or acrobatic gymnastics. So we're telling this actually story which everyone knows. We're telling with uh, our bodies, let's say, with acrobatic touch, yeah. So it's a it's yeah, and the soundtrack, um, the way that Service Lay revised our favorite Christmas song is beautiful, it's magical. It still has, a, you know, it's all original Christmas spirit, but it's in more in modern way, in a fun way, it's really beautiful. I had the chance to see the dress rehearsal, and your duo straps act is absolutely mind-blowing and you're also a married couple uh, i'd love to hear how long have the two of you been performing together and what's been your journey as aerial artists we actually met 14 years ago on a job we performed together and became a couple but after several years of performing we started to do something together and pretty quick we deliver our own style in straps 
and as soon as we sent the video to Cirque du Soleil, they were like, oh, you guys are very different from any other straps you will want you now in your creation. And that was exactly 10 years ago, and that's how we started. And we started to do, do a strap to Cirque du Soleil, we did a big, uh, big talk touring show, then we left and did many other experimental projects. And different shows in absolutely different styles and now we end up here for christmas wow you tell 14 years of our story in in uh, 30 seconds good i mean who wants to hear the whole 14 years <laughs> yes. in the end it's all about the christmas and what does it take to do the act that you do in twas the night before it takes a lot it takes much more than it looks like i think because we do have a fundamental training we just when we only do conditioning, we do the rehearsals where we only do developing of movement, finding, transition, finding, all of the skills we know to put in a dance way so it doesn't look like a typical circus uh, thing, so acrobatic. But it, it really worked in progress and I think up to today we, we're still learning. We're still developing, we're still, there is always something we want to do, there is always something we want to change or add. So even now that we do the Christmas show, we're still doing the training backstage and, you know, trying to find something. It's like never-ending process, yeah? But yeah, as Karina said, for, let's say, for five minutes of performance, we're rehearsing, let's say, five hours. So it's like, to be, it looks like five, five minutes only, but the preparation taking 90% of the time. For circus artist, so it's but it's, it's great. I mean, you know your goal, you know what you want to do. Yeah, it's already start from even if we do the show early in the evening, in the morning we're already planning it. Uh, what do we eat? How long we're gonna take to us do our warm up? Or we come for stretching? Then we're gonna take a break, and you know it's a whole day of preparation for one little show. Twas the Night Before opened November 25th. It's playing through December 11th. And this is a huge production from the costumes, the makeup, the lights, the music, um, not to mention the cast of 26 people from 14 different countries. What do you enjoy most about the show and what do you love most about the holiday season? I love, first of all, it doesn't get boring. And I had the feeling that in the last couple of years, I lost the sense of Christmas that I didn't care anymore. You know, you, you know, as an adult, you live a normal life and okay, Christmas is for kids. But this show is truly brings the magic of Christmas. We personally now getting excited for Christmas. We're thinking how we're gonna wrap the gift. Uh, and how we hear the music, how nostalgic it is, but it sounds very cool. Um, yeah, it's it, not, not only shopping, yeah? <laughs> no, it's not. No, but I do find this show is truly magical. I, I, you know, the fact that I wasn't believing in Christmas and I didn't care sometimes, but now it brings back that really real joy of Christmas. And it doesn't, and we don't even get tired of it. Even if we hear it in rehearsal, we haven't had the show, it's still truly magical. Yeah. I also think the cast is really believe what they've seen. Yeah, it's a good story. It's a good family story, you know, to to uh, about uh, to believe each other, you know, to care about each other. So it's really it's sort of really bring family to be together again. So it's good and it's uh, perfect for this time of the year, Christmas.
As mentioned before, this is a Christmas show unlike any that you've ever seen. Not your grandma's Christmas show. Uh, but who is the show for, and what feeling do you hope audiences take away from the piece? For me, definitely that they come back home, you know, and happy to stay together with all family. Because I know now everyone is busy working, doing their own thing, you know. But I think this time of the year. <clears throat> it's when family coming together, your grandfather, grandparents, mothers, you know, staying and enjoying this little, like, week of holidays, let's say, to stay together and enjoying the whole families. And, of course, come back to Cirque du Soleil every year. <laughs> um, I do think it's for everybody, like, actually for everybody. We have a very classical us, we have a you know, a TikTok saying that it's very up-to-date that we change every year depending on what's the trending. And we actually have that in the show. So all the kids and teenagers absolutely love it. They always recognize the dance from the TikTok scenes. I feel like that would, they would really enjoy the show as well. All right. Thank you both, Suren Buzian and Karina Konchakivska of Suren and Karina. Thank you so much for your time. Break legs and can't wait to see the show again. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. To learn more about tickets, you can visit www.cirquedusoleil.com forward slash twas-the-night-before. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. We close out tonight's broadcast with the Boston Children's Chorus, who welcomed Prince William and Princess Catherine of Wales on Wednesday with the rousing anthem Panic, a song about taking climate action. The royal couple ends their three days in Boston with the Earthshot Prize, an award ceremony to fund the best solutions in regenerating the planet. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon, and I'll see you next week.